turn please to Ezekiel in chapter 1. Ezekiel in chapter 1, I want to read the whole chapter. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace the truth that is here and I pray that uh, you would help us uh, see you clearly at all times and to understand who you are, who we are in relationship to you. That might inform everything about us and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a long chapter. Continue to remind yourself, however, that it is the Word of God. So please listen. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened. They saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness all around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings, their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze under their, their wings. On their four sides, they had human hands, and on the four, uh, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. The living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheel, wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose, among, uh, wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. 
and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, like this, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of, with a human appearance. And upward from uh, what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. You may ask, why Ezekiel? And, um, And I may answer, I'm not quite sure. Except... In my rumblings, it seems the right thing to do. You know, many of you, how I pick what I'm going to preach. Uh, I don't think I should be the one to determine that. Uh, So I preach through books. Uh, That way I only have to pick one every so often uh, and just go through it. That helps me in the sense that it just means each week I listen to that text to hear God hopefully determine what should be our theme for worship. I don't pick it, I listen and try to discern the meaning of that particular passage and that will set us for the week whether frankly I like it or not. There are many passages I would skip preaching like the one where Jesus cast demons out into a herd of pigs. What would ever lead a pastor to pick that passage? I don't know, but I preached it because it was there. It was the one that came up next when we were going through the gospel. And so uh, that's how I do it, and that's the reason I do it, so God can set the agenda and so that we can follow his cadence. Normally, if I were to pick, I might pick things that would please me and not him, that would glorify us and not him. But he uh, continues to show us uh, in that way. Plus, I have the great advantage that if I ever pick, uh, preach on something that's your particular problem of that week, you can't accuse me of having called your wife and asked her what I should preach or your husband or your children. Uh, It just is by the providence of God what was set for us that week. But all good books, like Philippians that we just finished, comes to an end, which then brings me back to trying to set then what shall be the next consideration uh, for us. And it's Ezekiel. And let me give you just a little bit of my thinking. Not that it matters that much. But I have a number of deep, I would say, uh, concerns these days. One is that it appears in our culture that the way that we come to know what we know, the way that we understand how we come to know what we know seems to be changing. Um, The more I interact with younger people, the more I read in terms of today's philosophy, 
I realized there's some things changing about how we come to know what we know. Uh, we've seen for many decades now an assault on the whole concept of absolute truth. And we've heard in previous decades the notion that all truth is relative, except, of course, for the truth that all truth is relative. That is an absolute truth at that point. But that now seems to have even slid even more as our definition of tolerance has changed. Because there was a time, you see, when tolerance meant that you were tolerant of people, not necessarily of their ideas. And everybody was okay with that. That if someone disagreed with you, you would be tolerant of them, but you could vigorously and honestly and directly disagree with their point of view without being unethical without being cast from the society as one who just was a hard-headed person or an argumentative person or a bigot. But now you see tolerance has moved from just not only tolerating people but also saying that all ideas are equal. And therefore, I must accept not only you, which I should, but your ideas as being right and true. And that leads us into a situation where now there are contradictory truths following us around. Where someone can look at a Christian and say, well, if that works for you, that's great. But you see, that makes each individual the arbiter of truth. Whatever works for you in your own mind. And of course, we can honestly say, if Christianity works for us, it must therefore work for everyone, because that's its nature. And if it doesn't work for us, then it doesn't work for anyone, because that's its nature, to be true truth. And so you see, in the midst of our time now, people are growing up thinking that you can have contradictory truths, which is a contradiction even as I say it. But we see that. That's troubling. Troubling to me too that I see in the context of the evangelical church a theological orientation that seems to be coming out. And it comes by a number of different handles, a number of different um, titles, the most common being open theism or a theology of the openness of God. The notion being that God is not, as we have always thought him to be, sovereign over all things. The one who ordains everything that comes to pass and therefore he knows all that's going to come to pass because he ordains everything that's going to come to pass. Nothing comes to pass unless he ordains it because he's God and he's sovereign over all of that. And yet this notion is developing and it is a man by the name of John Frame a little book on our book carts called No Other God John Frame's a theologian of some note uh, presently teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida he writes this to describe the openness of God theology he says they believe this God's will is not the ultimate explanation of everything you think for us ultimately we believe God's will will be done but in this notion God's will is not the ultimate explanation of everything. History is, com- is the combined result of what God and his creatures decide to do. We believe that history will move along on God's path and that no individual will thwart his will. But this view says history is the combined result of what God and his creatures decide to do. God does not know everything timelessly, but learns from events as they take place. So God is dependent on the world in some ways. That's a troubling notion. It's also troubling to me, frankly, as I read things 
being written even in the context of the evangelical community that's backing away from the centrality of the cross that is backing away from the necessity of the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross. That while that's still a part of Christianity in this literature, it isn't the central piece as it is for us. For we believe that God created human beings, sinned, and that sin brought condemnation and corruption in humanity only to be redeemed by the work of Christ, his holy life, as well as, most significantly, his cross work, that is, his atoning sacrifice that we say is a substitutionary atonement that it, sets, it substitutes for you and me. And it troubles me when I see that the emphasis on that understanding is diminishing in some of our circles. So I began to think, and I've been praying through this, as well, what do we need in this kind of, a, of an environment? And I was reminded of this little phrase in verse 1 of Ezekiel 1, I saw visions of God. And I began to think how easy it is for us to play at philosophy and play at thinking when we're not in the presence of God. I remember once I was uh, in graduate school uh, years ago, the first time I was in graduate school, studying economics, and uh, um, I was at Florida State University, which was a, not only a football school, we were 0 11 the year I'm remembering, but, but the nice thing about being in a Florida school is that old professors from the north would retire in the south, and so I was able to get a bunch of very famous, at least to economist types, and there was a man by the name of Abba Lerner who uh, had been one of the students of a man by the name of John Maynard Keynes about which was titled Keynesian Economics. So when he, Dr. Lerner came and, and he was in his 80s to teach at Florida State University and I remember one time a group of us were sitting in the graduate student room drinking coffee and sounding wise. And then Dr. Lerner walked in and everybody shut up, except for one idiot. <laughs> Fortunately, it wasn't me. Not that I'm not an idiot, but at least I know when to keep my mouth shut. And his lack of intelligence compared to this great one was, was so evident. Because it's easy to kind of kibitz and it's easy to kind of talk about God when you don't feel like you're in his direct presence. What is he really like? Oh, we can come up with all kinds of things. But I began to think what we need, what I need to keep before me, to keep all of this straight, is a vision of God. And so I think of my friend Ezekiel. Now, as we undertake this task in the decades before us, I'll talk about that in a minute, but in the time before us. You have to understand that Ezekiel was weird. And what we're going to get from Ezekiel is not to go down and lay on Massachusetts Street on our left side for 390 days as a sign of judgment, and then on our right side for 40 days, and take a brick and play army against it as if there were a siege and 
and, 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 and cook our food on a fire of cow's dung. All right? That's not what I'm expecting here. If, so if you do that, don't do it with a gray CPC t-shirt on. Um, you're on your own when you start that kind of stuff. But there's something here, you see, about what Ezekiel saw. What Ezekiel saw and what he heard that needs to inform what we believe to be true about God. God as he reveals himself. God as he shows himself. And of course, you see, this is a very long book, 48 chapters. If I take it in my normal course, it will take us six years. We're not really going to do that, I, I promise you, although my family's already started wagers on how long this will take. But, 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 but I really don't think it's going to take whatever that long means because we're going to have to take big sections because they're big truths here. And to help us organize our thoughts, turn, let me just cite a couple of New Testament passages which help us to put the Old Testament in perspective. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, Paul has just been talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about incidents that happened in the life of ancient Israel and he's trying to teach them how to understand these and why he cites them. And so in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 he says this, Now these things took place, that is all this stuff during the days of Moses, which he was quoting about, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so we read the Old Testament so that we can see what we're not supposed to do. So we can see examples of what they did and how God responded in judgment. And so we shouldn't do that. We'll see that. And then again in verse 11 of this same chapter he writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, that is Christ has come. And so we're to go to school on the Old Testament situations. We're to see how they lived and we're going to say, and we're going to be warned by that and say, let's not do that. So we read the Old Testament and we find warnings there. And not only that, if you look in Romans in chapter 15 and verse 4, again, Paul is talking about the Old Covenant. Romans 15 and verse 4. And he says, For whatever was written in former days, that is, in the Old Testament, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so not only are we looking at these passages to warn us, but we're also looking at these passages so that we can endure, so that we can persevere, so that we can have hope. And if we would consider just a very cursory outline of the book of Ezekiel, we find that chapters 1 through 32 are almost all, not completely, but almost all judgment. Chapters 1 through 32, judgment passages. But then, chapters 33 to the end, especially 33 to 39, but 33 to 48, are all restoration passages. And so what we have as we read through the book of Ezekiel is this word of warning of judgment. But yet, because God is God, and because He is gracious, and because He's faithful to His covenant promises, then He tells us about the restoration that is to come about the hope that is ours by trusting in Him. So that's the course upon which I think we're set. So let's take a look quickly at this Ezekiel chapter 1, this very first vision. Now, just quickly, in verse 1 he says it's the 30th year, that means he's 30 years old. In the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, 
He was among the exiles, so he's exiled. And now, just very quickly, you don't need to remember this, but just to set this in its context, you can get a feel for what's, what's going on here. You remember um, ancient Israel, the first kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Okay? That was when Israel was united. After Solomon, the, uh, Israel divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was to the north, I'm not going too fast for you, am I? Uh, the southern kingdom, which was to the south, okay? Now, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes of Israel, to the north, was destroyed in 722 B.C. Because of the judgment of God upon them, he used the Assyrians to come and to destroy them. Now, at that point in time, the Assyrians then wanted to go over down to the southern kingdom and also take Judah and the Levites, the southern kingdom. However, they were unable to do that because of the providence of God, God being at work, and God being at work, at least in part, through King Hezekiah, who was a good king. After King Hezekiah died, then his son Manasseh became king for 55 years. And Manasseh was an evil king. The scripture said he did evil uh, in, the, in the eyes of the Lord. And you can read through this in second, the end of 2 Kings and the end of uh, 2 Chronicles. And I'm not going to read it all to you, but let's, let me just read about Manasseh just very quickly. It said, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practice of the, of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so he, 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 he um, cooperated with the nations around them and began to worship their gods, even to the point of bringing their gods into the temple. And he even offered his own son as a sacrifice. Think of that. That's how evil he was. And the Bible says that these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. He means evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil man. Not only did he sacrifice his own son to these foreign gods, but if he had had his druthers, he obviously would have led his own people, the people of Israel. If I could just say this and cut to the chase right to hell after Manasseh and his great sins then there was a king for a couple of years Ammon and then good king Josiah comes along and good king Josiah comes along and, and he gets rid of all these foreign gods from the high places from the temple and in the midst of, of tidying up the temple in the midst of cleaning up the temple they find the law of God and they hadn't had it no wonder they were so far off they hadn't had the law of God. They hadn't had the covenant of God. And so he reinstitutes the Passover. And, and good King Josiah uh, brings a measure of goodness, prosperity, righteousness to the land of, of Judah. However, in 609 B.C., just catch a glimpse of this. In 609 B.C., there's a war. And it appears as if Josiah has made a foolish alliance some way. And he gets caught up in this war between Assyria and Egypt. And Egypt wins. And when Egypt wins, then Judah becomes a tributary of Egypt. That is, they have to pay tribute to Egypt, which is a form of taxation and protection money, essentially. Uh, and so if they pay enough money, then they keep sort of Egypt out. And, uh, but they had to pay this money. Now, Josiah dies. His son, Jehoiahaz, becomes king for just a few months. And then the Egyptian uh, king, Necho, uh, brings in Jehoiahaz's brother, Jehoiakim, to be the next king. And he's king for 
for about 11 years. But in 605 BC, again, you don't need to remember this, but just take it. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, comes against the Egyptians and wins. And so in winning, then as his prize, he gets Judah. He gets the tribute money from Judah. He wins that as part of this, part of this battle. And he begins by taking the first exiles out of the southern kingdom, including, of course, Daniel. 605 BC, he takes the best of the best out of Israel because his notion was the way that we can destroy this southern kingdom is to take their people out. And so he, he exiles them away and he takes Daniel and his buddies and you know that story. Then in 601 BC, Jehoiakim decides he's going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and not pay the tribute money. You know, if you're in the mob, you've got to pay the mob. And if you don't, they eventually come after you. Nebuchadnezzar in 598 BC comes after, comes down into uh, Judah and, uh, and, and reestablishes himself. And Jehoiakim dies. And Nebuchadnezzar finally uh, then uh, appoints uh, Jehoiakim's brother, Jehoiakim, to be... I don't know why they kept doing that, this Jehoiah thing. Uh, but uh, to be king. And this was 598 BC, which was the second exile out of the southern kingdom, which was the next best of all in Israel, including Ezekiel. And listen how the writer of 2 Kings puts it. He, that is Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin uh, to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made uh, Jehoiachin's uncle king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Ezekiel was moved in 598 BC from his surroundings where he would be a priest 700 miles away to Babylon when 700 miles was the length of the world. Zedekiah becomes king 598 B.C. By 588 B.C., he decides he's going to rebel against the Babylonian king. 586, 587, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes back, destroys Jerusalem, takes Zedekiah the king, kills both his sons right in front of him, then plucks out his eyes, takes him into captivity. And here's how it ends. In Second Kings. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now where we pick up in Ezekiel chapter 1 is in 593 B.C., so it's five years after Ezekiel had been exiled and about six years or so before Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. 
So that's where we find him, right here. The hand of the Lord is upon him, and he sees this vision very quickly. Let's walk through it. Verse 4, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north. Now, if you're reading the Old Testament, nothing good ever comes from the north. Okay, those Yankees. Nothing good comes from the north. Interestingly, the Babylonians will come to the north in 588 to 586 BC. But this is a vision of God. As I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north in a great cloud with brightness and try, 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 try to see this. Okay? A great cloud with brightness all around it. See, we should be reading this with sunglasses on. It's that bright. And fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. So he sees this fire. And when you see fire in the scripture, you always think of, of that which destroys or purifies. If it's flammable, it just goes up in smoke. It's just destroyed. But if it's strong, but has some impurities, it becomes more pure. It's this fire of, of holiness, of purity, of judgment. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Now, this is kind of a weird picture because it's going to describe four different sort of post pillars that are decorated with these images. Now, to you and me, that looks awfully weird, but, but in the ancient Near East, if you were a king and you had a throne and you were going to put your throne up on some stilts, up on a platform, you would take each pillar of that platform and you would decorate it. And you would decorate it in such a way as to reflect who you are. Okay? And so what we're going to see here are these pillars that are supporting a platform above which is this expanse, which is the very throne of God. So, and from the midst, verse 5, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings, okay? So each one of those four faces, four wings. Uh, their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. Now that may not impress you. Guys, don't go home and look at your wife's feet and go, oh my, you have the sole of a calf on your foot. Um, but actually that was quite a compliment because it meant nimble, could be swift and move around. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. And under their wings and their foresight, they had human hands. We'll need the hands later in chapter 8. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. And their wings touched one another. So the wings are touching. Uh, each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. Um, human faces were to depict intelligence, interestingly enough. The chief of God's creation, intelligence. The four had a face of a lion on the right side, regal, royal, king, king of the beasts, king of the jungle. The four had the face of an ox on the left side, ox, strength, the strongest domesticated animal. And the four had the face uh, of an eagle. Now, I don't know what you think about eagles, but in the scripture, the eagles are always seen as swift and strong and protecting. That we're, 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 we're raised on eagles' wings and we're under the shadow of their wings. And so this king is saying, I'm, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I'm the king, I'm strong, and I'm caring. Okay? Uh, as such were the faces. And the wings were spread out, each creature had two wings, and they touched. Um, 
Verse 13, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. So picture that. These things are red hot looking. Burning coals of fire and their holiness. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. So all kinds of sparks flying. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of the flash of lightning. Verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel. Now you know this little spiritual we sang as children some of us Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air that's where it comes from now as I looked at the living creatures I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures and each of them uh, for the, each of the four of them and so these wheels intersected in such a way that this thing could move in any direction without making any turns that's what he saw and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction, being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And they went. Uh, they went in, in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And the rims were tall and awesome, and the rims were, uh, of all were full of eyes. And eyes everywhere on these rims. They could see these eyes. They could see everything that was going to take place. Which, by the way, destroys the whole notion of this openness of God theology. Because it says, no, he could see, he sees it. This isn't something that's a surprise to him. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. So everywhere these wheels went, they could go anywhere, in any direction, up on the earth or down. Whenever the Spirit, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So the Spirit of God was in the wheels, animating this thing, moving this whole thing, and it could go, it could go anywhere. And there was never any conflict. It always went where the Spirit wanted it to go. There was never any question about that. Nothing could impede it. Nothing could keep it. Nothing could hinder it. And then the heads of the living creature, there was the likeness of an expanse, a shining and awe-inspiring crystal, like a sea of glass above this thing. It was spread out over their heads, so they're sort of holding up this thing, holding up this platform. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out. Verse 24, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? The noise is unbelievable. As soon as you get closer and closer to these great falls, the noise level just rises, but it's so interesting. Because while it's so incredibly noisy, you still can turn and talk to the person beside you. Yet the most predominant thing is the noise, the thing that catches you. When you leave and you close the door of your car, all of a sudden it seems really silent. That's the noise that's just erupting from this thing, from the very throne of God. And while they stood, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood, they let down their wings. And then things get a little fuzzy for Ezekiel. He keeps using words like likeness and appearance because it, it, it's, it's, he can't really describe it. It's as if the closer he gets into the presence of God, the fuzzier it, get, it becomes. How do I explain this? How do I show this? What am I really seeing here? I've never seen anything like this before. It's one thing to describe these, these pillars and posts with faces on them and these wheels. However weird that may be, I can explain that. But he's beginning to peer into the throne of God. And it, it's like this and it's like that and it appears like that. How do I really explain this? The likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. We'll get to that in 
later. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had appeared of his waist, I, I saw it where the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him and the appearance was like a rainbow. And then notice, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. As I think about that which I mentioned concerns me. And I wonder how it is that we to speak in that kind of situation, in that culture with people's understanding of knowledge changing, of people's definition of what is truth changing, of even theologies changing. How do we speak in the midst of that? And I think the first thing we must have is a vision of God that humbles us. A vision of God that puts us on, his, on our face before him. So as we read through the scripture, when people really see God, their impulse is to hit the ground. When Moses saw the burning bush, he had to hide his face. When Job had this great revelation of God, where God said, where were you when, you, when I did this? And where were you when I did that? And when finally Job gets it, his first response is to say, I've been a fool. I'm going to keep my mouth shut from now on. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and he sees the train of his robe filling the temple and the angels round about the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with your glory. Isaiah's response is to say, I'm about to blow up. I feel my joints pulling away because I realize that I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and yet my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. When Daniel has a vision of God, he falls on his face before him. You might remember the disciples of Jesus when they were in the boat one day, when they were on this raging, in the midst of this raging storm in the sea. They were afraid. But you know what they were more afraid of by the end of the day? It was Jesus. Because in the midst of that storm, he stood up and said, stop, and it did. And the scripture tells us, and they were afraid. Out of the storm because they saw the power and the wisdom of God in this man, Jesus. You remember the time that, 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 that Peter had been out fishing and he'd been out fishing and didn't catch anything and uh, comes in and Jesus says, go back out. He goes, okay. He goes back out and he catches tons of fish at Jesus' command, at Jesus' word. And then Peter looks at Jesus and says, get away from me. See, I would think Peter would say, you want to have a partnership? But in that moment in time, Peter saw the glory of God in Jesus. And he said, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. When John the Apostle received the great vision we call the revelation of John, he fell right on his face before God. Because you see, we're humbled when we're in the very presence of greatness and we're most humbled and rightly humbled when we're in the very presence of God because you see when we're in his presence we understand very real our moral bankruptcy we see our sin when we see his holiness 
and we fall on our face before Him and say, I'm not worthy to look upon you. Please forgive my sins. And we stand before God, we see our intellectual bankruptcy. And we realize we don't know anything in the presence of God who knows everything. And we say, I don't know. Please instruct me. Please teach me. We, we, we fall on our face before him because we see our aesthetic bankruptcy. Because we say, my eyes do not know what is beautiful. My heart does not know what to cling to and love. So please fill me with you and your sense of beauty and your sense of righteousness. And we see the bankruptcy of our own strength when we see his power. And we say, I haven't got it. Would you please strengthen me and fill me? You see, Ezekiel sees this vision of God and he falls in humility before him. I pray for us in these months that that will happen to us. That as we sojourn with our brother Ezekiel through these pages, and we'll see God. And when we see God, that it will first then humble us before Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, I pray, take all that we have, all that we are, and enable us to know you, to see you. Help us most especially in these days so that we would see you clearly and respond rightly so then we can share the truth about you to all those around us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Um, as you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray in the office area. Please take advantage of that. College students, lunch will happen in room three. We've opened it up, so there's plenty of space for everybody. So after we're done, just head on that away. And uh, before too long, there should be food on the table. And um, so enjoy, and I'll be there shortly. The response to the benediction is this, holy is the Lord Almighty, amen. That's a little different for us, but it's true. It's a statement of fact, but I trust it rings true that you know the very holiness of God and you've experienced that in the context of your own life. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Holy is the Lord Almighty. Amen.